This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Food allergy is an immune reaction that develops following ingestion of sometimes even a very small amount of the offending food product. It's thought to occur in up to 4% of adults, and it's not to be confused with the food intolerance, which is much more common. It's important to recognize patients who develop a food allergy as they can develop not only relatively benign symptoms, such as GI problems or hives, but also more severe and potentially life-threatening conditions, such as bronchospasm or even anaphylaxis. What are the most common foods that produce allergies? How should these patients be evaluated? And how do we manage them? Our topic for today is food allergy. And these are some of the questions I'll be asking our guest, Dr. Gerald Volchek from the Division of Allergic Disease at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Jerry, welcome, and thank you for joining me. It's nice to see you again. No, thank you, Daryl. Good to be here. Well, let's start by talking about the common symptoms of food allergies. When should we suspect them when a patient is describing symptoms? Now, that's a, a really great question. and. Part of the trouble sometimes in discerning is food allergy happening is there could be quite a range of symptoms, but the way to kind of think about it is what would be happening with histamine release involving the different organ systems. So skin-wise, and these are usually the most common findings in a food allergy reaction, would be hives, itching, sometimes erythema or flush and then kind of work your way through the other organ systems. So like from a pulmonary standpoint, wheeze, shortness of breath, sometimes cough could even be part of the picture. And GI-wise, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, diarrhea. Cardiovascular-wise, if again, it's a more significant reaction, could result in tachycardia or low blood pressure. And that usually then is part of a a full-blown anaphylaxis picture. What can be difficult sometimes though, is all of these may occur or only one or two may occur. And also the severity of it could vary. You know, it may just be a few hives or a whole body could be covered in hives. So there's a lot of variability within that kind of group of symptoms. Mm -hmm. How soon after somebody ingests a certain food do these symptoms typically occur? Is it within seconds, minutes, hours? The vast majority will be within minutes. And kind of the rule of thumb we say is up to about an hour. And that is really the rule for the vast majority of foods. There's only really one known exception to that. And that's alpha-gal allergy. And that's found in beef, lamb, and pork primarily. And for reasons that are not yet completely clear, the allergic reaction to that can be delayed. And it's you know six to eight hours afterwards. And you could see that exact same combination we were just talking about. 
you know, it seems like we're hearing more about food allergies. Uh, are they more common now than in the past? Yes, unfortunately they are. There were a lot of prevalence studies done in the late 90s. And when you look at the late 90s and early 2000s compared to the early 2010s, and that's the latest data that we have right now, it's almost doubled. At what age do food allergies typically develop? Is, is this a common thing to start in childhood or does it uh, often present in adulthood? Yeah, almost always we see it start in childhood, and it's usually within the first two years of life, and the highest prevalence is actually at one year of age. But in you know when you look at all the people with food allergy, about 15% can develop it as adults. Okay. And let's say a child does develop a food allergy or an adult. Do these tend to resolve on their own over time or do they stay with them the rest of their life? It really depends on the food. What we see as far as the more lifelong food allergies, those tend to be peanut, tree nuts, and shellfish. And when people develop those, there's only about a, a 15 to 20% chance that they'll outgrow that at some point. But it's just the opposite with some of the other food allergies. So the common ones in childhood, such as milk, egg, wheat, those are typically uh, outgrown during late childhood or during the teenage years. Mm -hmm. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, but there's some uh, talk that delaying introduction of various foods into a diet can prevent food allergy. Is there any validity to that? No, not at all. And exact, it's the opposite of that that's true. This came to fore, in, especially in 2015 with the LEAP study that was published. And again, it, it showed the exact opposite. So it's actually early introduction that helps prevent food allergy. It was a very interesting study um, where they took children at, or infants really at high risk for food allergy. So to get into the study, they either had to have atopic dermatitis or eczema or a history of egg allergy. And one group was given peanut to eat on a regular basis, starting approximately at six months of age and continuing to age five. And the other group had to strictly avoid peanut until age five. And the results were, again, amazing. There was an 80% reduction in peanut allergy in the peanut-eating infants and children compared to those that were avoiding it. So they've now tried to look at other foods, egg, for example, and they're seeing a similar trend, but not results that were as conclusive as we saw with peanut. Mm -hmm. How about in families where one child has an allergy to a certain food and they have another child, should they avoid that food or should they test it? What should they do? That's a very good question. And I don't know if there's a clear cut answer to that. Now, certainly if in the home, there's a child with a severe allergy, you know, had an anaphylactic a reaction to a food, you really don't want that food in the house just because of the risk uh, to that child. On the other hand, you don't want the sibling to possibly develop it because they're uh, avoiding it. 
testing can be tricky in that situation, especially if they haven't had exposure, because testing by itself typically is not 100% definitive. You need a kind of a history along with that to know that how predictive the test really is going to be. So I would say those situations are somewhat unique. It depends too on the family's take on and comfort level with the different options. And it's just important to kind of lay out to them, you know, these are the pros and cons of the different approaches that can be taken. Sure. Well, it sounds like that's one controversy with food allergies. Are there others? Are there are there controversies surrounding food allergies? Yeah, I think there's quite a few. And the internet is full of different things in regards to food allergy. And you mentioned at the very beginning of, of this segment that there's a difference between food intolerances and food allergies. And there's a lot of misconceptions along those lines, and it does then become somewhat controversial. But with food intolerance, you know, the most common symptoms are more strictly gastrointestinal, maybe bloating, diarrhea, and, and that's due to difficulty in digesting the food, you know, with lactose intolerance kind of being the most well-known and well-studied of that group. But some people will think that's a food allergy, but it really isn't. It's just they have trouble digesting it. They just have GI symptoms. Whereas, you know, as we mentioned, food allergy usually involves a few different things happening at the same time related to that histamine release. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the controversies is, you know, what really is a food allergy and, and what isn't? And then also something that we see quite a bit of, and this is controversial and, you know, sometimes has resulted in heated discussions, is the role of IgG testing to foods. This is done a lot by alternative medicine uh, practitioners, and these type of tests now are even commercially available. You can get this in, go to a drugstore and get a kit to do IgG testing to foods, but both the Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the college really are clear that it's not the test to do, and the reason is almost everybody is going to have a lot of positives to IgG testing to food. It's part of our body's normal response. The people, though, that utilize these tests will point to these foods then as being things to be avoided, but it has not correlated well at all with symptom improvement, even though, again, very popular, commercially available, but unfortunately not accurate. Okay. Are there risk factors for food allergies? Are there some individuals who are more likely to experience them than others? Yes, uh, particularly uh, children, infants that have ex bad eczema or atopic dermatitis. They are clearly a group that's more likely to develop food allergy than those without. So I take it if an individual has a food allergy, it can go the other way too, that they're more likely to have other allergies. Yes. The usual kind of order for this is atopic march or allergy march. It kind of starts with the eczema or atopic dermatitis when very young, often followed by food allergy, and then further down the road, the development of allergic rhinitis, you know, primarily seasonal allergies and mm -hmm. asthma. 
And studies of children with food allergy shows that they're three times more likely to develop allergic rhinitis and asthma than their uh, fellows that do not have any food allergy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some food allergies a little bit ago. Can any food actually be a food that one develops an allergy to? Yes, there are the common ones, but you, you have to keep in mind, almost anything has that potential. Okay. And what are the most common food allergies that you see? In children, and fortunately, most of them lose that over time. We see the milk, egg, wheat, then of course, peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish are overall the most common. Others that are really working their way up the list too are soy and sesame. Let's talk about peanut allergy. That one probably gets more press than any of the others. How common is that? Overall, it is the most common in children. Again, depending on the populations that's looked at, it's a half a percent to 3% of children uh, can have peanut allergy. And again, the majority of those, about 80%, will then have that their entire life, making peanut allergy then one of the more common adult food allergies that are seen. I've often wondered why airlines were giving out peanuts. And I mean, think the last thing you would want at 30,000 feet is to have somebody experience a severe reaction to peanuts. How much of exposure do you need if somebody you know, opens a little thing of peanuts and gets the dust on the tray? Could that cause an allergic reaction in some? Yes, it can, but fortunately, that's very rare. That's that very, very small percentage that are exquisitely sensitive. The majority of people with peanut allergy really need to ingest it in some form or another. Okay. Which foods tend to cause the most tendency towards anaphylactic reactions? Yeah, I would say the four most common are going to be peanut and the tree nuts and then fish and shellfish. Okay. As I was reading about food allergies, I came across an interesting article on the microbiome of the GI tract and its relationship with food allergies. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Yes, this is a, a big area of research right now. And I think there, there definitely is, is something to it. It's being looked at from both a preventive standpoint and then also from a, a treatment standpoint. So from a preventive standpoint, it does appear there are characteristics of the microbiome that are different in those that develop food allergy versus those that do not. But the studies aren't conclusive yet at this point. An important aspect of it seems to be when it's studied and if an intervention is done, when it is done to make a difference from a preventive standpoint. And overall, it's looking like the most effect, if you're going to alter the microbiome, needs to occur less than two years of age and sometimes even less than one year of age to really make a difference as far as possible prevention of food allergy. Okay. So let's say we're seeing a patient in our office and we suspect that they're describing a food allergy. Before we refer them to an allergist, assuming the uh, symptoms are significant, what should we do to evaluate them? Would you like us to do some tests before we send them to you? 
it kind of depends on the overall setup and you know how soon that may be or or not and the reason i say that is the tests are not definitive by themselves and in particular for food allergy testing the specificity is poor meaning a poor positive predictive value the the testing you know and i'm talking about the blood ige testing to specific foods you know you could order a peanut ige or a pecan ige the sensitivity is good so if it's negative there's a, a good chance that it is a true negative but again that's not perfect either and they're still on the order of 10 to 15 percent um, false a negative test with that and then from a positive if it's positive the specificity is only about 50 to 60%. And that's why it's important with the testing to make sure you're really just ordering the things that you're suspicious about. But again, not definitive uh, by themselves. We oftentimes do skin testing to foods too, uh, because the sensitivity is even higher uh, with the skin testing. And again, we want to focus on the things that we're most suspicious of based on the history. It takes kind of the, the whole picture. And, you know, I don't know if ordering a lot ahead of time is going to make a big difference as far as trying to figure out the overall management. So it sounds like, you know, just like other medical problems, the most important part of your evaluation is the medical history. And this may help a bit, but uh, we still come down to the basics. The medical history is going to a major role in giving somebody a diagnosis. Absolutely. And that I would want to be one of the main things that I would want to emphasize, you know, with this discussion is the the history is critical. And so you want to look at everything that was ingested and the timing of it. And then what were the symptoms? So again, there's a lot of misconceptions of what food allergy is. We'll see people that may have fatigue and, and they're blaming that on food allergy or, you know, have an intolerance and, but they're worried that that's a food allergy and that they're at risk for a, a major reaction. Mm -hmm. So education on, on what is and what isn't an allergic reaction to food is, is really important. And then getting that history what was ingested, what happened, what was the timing, are really critical in then determining what's done to further evaluate. Let's say you have a patient who's been diagnosed with a specific food allergy, and they're really good at avoiding that food for years. Do you ever test them in the future to see if they still have uh, an issue with that food? Yes, except for you know the peanut, tree nut, fish, shellfish, the others are typically outgrown or that food allergy is lost over time. Mm -hmm. And even in those four, you know, there's still maybe 15% chance that can be lost over time. So we definitely do test people down the road to see if things changed as far as the skin test or the blood test. And again, depending on the individual, if those tests are now negative, then we talk to them about doing an observed challenge in the office to see, can they tolerate it? We don't just say, oh, the test is negative, you could go do whatever, because we don't have that much confidence in the test. But doing an observed challenge, you know, in a setting where we have epinephrine available, where we have access to emergency care available if needed, is the way we proceed in those situations. Okay. Let's finish up by talking about management. 
other than avoiding the offending food, do you have any other treatment options available? Yeah, there's a few things. As far as the avoidance part, you know, that is is critical for the majority, but as par- part of that avoidance is also education on what foods may be cross-reactive and also cause a reaction. So that's an important component of it. And then also showing a person how to use an injectable epinephrine pen and when to use it. And if you are using it, advice and instruction on proceeding to the emergency room for further evaluation. And then also too, as part of that education, going over with the patient, where do the most inadvertent exposures occur? And tips, you know, especially if it's a child, all of the the, the different possible uh, pitfalls they could run into. And then as an adult too, and we see a lot of people, you know, in the college years and, you know, they're leaving home, you know, they're leaving that controlled environment, then they're going off to school. So it's really important to educate those young adults on, you know, this is where you possibly could get exposed. These are things to look out for. That usually makes the family feel a little bit better too, that that's being addressed as far as, you know, how to to work with it in, in the real world, so to speak. Let's say you have a patient and they use uh, an EpiPen and their symptoms resolve. Is it still important for them to be seen by some medical facility? Yeah, that's a great question and one that's being debated right now. We just had our recent Academy of Allergy uh, meeting and I'm a member of the anaphylaxis committee. And one thing that I really wasn't aware of that was discussed is that during this COVID pandemic, there were a lot of allergists that were trying to keep people from going to the emergency room because, you know, they were being overrun or they they go there and then they get exposed to COVID and that type of thing. But there was a lot of debate in the room, and I don't think there was a definitive answer. Uh, and it's something that they're going to be actually surveying patients and physicians about is, okay, the epi's given things seem to be settled down and doing fine. Can you just stay home? I think we're leaning more towards yes for that, but it still makes people nervous because Mm -hmm. sometimes things could settle down and then boom, they take off again with this. I would say that's a work in progress, something that's being looked at very closely though by the people that put together some of the practice guidelines. And we may be seeing the needle shift a little bit where before we just said, you use the epi, you go to the ER period. I think there may be some gray there that's going to get further addressed. Okay. So more to come. Yes. Well, Jerry, you've given us some very thoughtful information about food allergies. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? The first thing is, is the reaction that's occurring truly a food allergy? And again, that's thinking about that histamine release uh, uh, through the, the different organ systems. And then if yes, yeah, that really seems consistent to realize that the testing and the evaluation for food allergy is not 100% accurate with even combining the skin test and the IgE blood test. And thirdly, then management includes primarily avoidance, education, and then being able to know how to deal with an emergency. One thing we didn't touch upon that I wanted to mention when you asked about treatment, 
because this question gets asked to us a lot. There is one FDA approved treatment for peanut allergy that's been available now for a, a couple of years where it's a, a actual desensitization or immunotherapy to peanut product itself. This involves a lot of regulation. It's not easy to get a hold of this we call it medication, but it's literally peanut flour, and it involves doing a progressive uh, desensitization, including a, a challenge. So this is pretty much strictly done in allergist office, and it's not a cure, but it is a, a desensitization, and it helps in the sense that if person's able to go through this and stays on this, and right now it's indefinitely, there isn't a time frame set on it, their risk with an inadvertent exposure would be lower than it is for the other peanut allergic person, but it is not a green light that now they could eat peanut. There's pros and cons to it, but it's the first step in being offered something for, from a treatment standpoint, but given the rigor that it takes to do the desensitization, the fact that you have to continue on it indefinitely and it's not a green light to eat peanut. It is being done, but it's it's not being done in a large number of people. Okay. Well, we've been discussing food allergies with allergist Dr. Gerald Volchek from the Mayo Clinic. Jerry, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Oh, great. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, Daryl. Thank you very much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.